0: Hi, this is Eric Luty for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Guys, it is really difficult to land this plane, which I'm calling the series on Alfred, uh, because there's so much more I'm not covering, and I'm having to sort of pick my battles, uh, no pun intended when you're dealing with all these battles, but... Uh, Nathan took my spot yesterday in, in the flow of Daily Thunders, and so now I have the next two days, and so we're going to get uh, our fill of Alfred here over the next uh, two days. In fact, out of four days, we have three Alfreds, and then we're, we're bringing it to a close. looks like there's going to be 21 uh, sessions or episodes in this, and they are really powerful, and yet they're different than some of the, the previous ones that we've gone through in this series, and but they, they speak a language to my soul, which is sometimes hard to reach. You know sometimes we stay in a very simple line uh, in, our, in our Christian thinking, and our, our remembrances are, are are somewhat shallow and it 's not bad you know to think of, okay, I need to get up and I need to uh, live for Jesus today you know praise god that 's a good dimension to be at, and most people aren 't at that. However, to go deeper into that level of improving the soul and sharpening it in its dull places and to allow the Spirit of God to go down to the granular level and fix things and to recalibrate thought processes so that we actually live differently. We don't just try and not live poorly. We actually live with excellence. And I I was doing a workout this morning, and it was an exhausting workout, if I could just be blunt about the workout. It was one of those workouts that you're dreaming of being done with it even though, why do you keep why do we, you, you keep waking up in the morning doing these things, right? But this is one of those uh, ones that was just way too long, and it had just it, I was so utterly exhausted. It took me about forty five minutes to an hour to recover from it, and that's uh, that's a pretty extreme uh, depth of uh, insult to my body, is what it was. And so I remember I was out here and I was running towards the uh, the chapel building, and I knew it was my final like four hundred meters, and So inside, I'm sort of thinking, okay, this is where I need to kick in, and I need to just exert everything I have left. And yet, then I'm arguing with myself, but I don't have anything left. And so then I go another, you know, 10 paces, and I'm like, but aren't I supposed to kick in right about now and give everything I have left? And then I'm arguing, but I don't have anything left. And who is to know the difference between when Eric expends himself and gives that extra measure and when he doesn't? Who's testing it? Who's measuring it? No one. Well, that is, except the Holy Spirit and Eric. In other words, there's certain things I know that I am doing that you don't. And there's certain things where I know I was lax that you wouldn't know. And so you could be impressed with certain things, but Eric knows. And so the spirit of a man knows what is in that man, just as the spirit of God knows what's in that man. And so to allow the spirit of God to touch you in those spots... Those those points where you want to flag, you want to go lax, that he sharpens is a very very important dimension of the Christian life, and so we're going to go back in time uh, quite a few hundred years. Right? What is this like twelve hundred years back? Uh, and in studying the life of Alfred the Great, most people, and I've encountered so many people while going through this series that have no clue who Alfred the Great is. It's like who's this guy? And like they've heard of Alexander the Great. But Alfred the Great, who's that? And it's interesting because this man's life is so significant in history, the history of one of the most important uh, countries in all of you know modern times, which is Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and how that's going to influence our history here in America. I mean, that's a huge part of our history. And how that's going to impact World War I, World War II, which has affected the last 100 years. And yet this one country is going to be built and established in and through this man. It was either going to be lost because this man did nothing, or it's going to be founded because this man did something. And as a result, his life and his decisions stir me, and they touch me in a way that very few lives do. I have a fun title for this one. It it looks like it's not quite fitting on the screen. It's like stretching itself a little too far. But The Rabid Yeti of Wessex. Uh, you're thinking, they had yetis back then? Oh, yes, there's a yeti in this story. It's very fascinating, very intriguing. <clears throat> so the craving for something more, what I call the endless frontier mentality. So those of you that have gone through Ellerslie, you've heard the term the endless frontier. In fact, there's a few people with T-shirts in here that say never pitch your tent. That's, that's an that's a Ellerslie sort of phrase that is based on what we call the endless frontier mentality. When we gather for a banquet night, it's not uncommon for me to say something like, there is something that unites us all. We all come from different spiritual heritages. We all have different denominational backgrounds. And yet there is something that is uniting us here. And that is that we crave something more. We don't want to settle for what we see in the world today. We don't want to settle for what Christianity has become. We want to go after the real thing. And so this endless frontier concept is pull up the tent stakes, onward march. Don't just look for a flat piece of territory where you can call it good enough. The concept of good enough is a great enemy of the calling of God upon our life. And yet we are very susceptible to it. Good enough is better than most people are doing. In fact, what we're wanting to do is if everyone else is getting a B plus, we can get an A-minus. And an A-minus, that's a good grade. Let's all just acknowledge that. You know, every parent is proud of their child for getting an A-minus. I mean, that's hard to do. But if you could get an A, or what if you could get an A+, plus, or what if you could get bonus assignments and get an A++, plus plus? would you be willing to kick into your full sprint even when you're tired? Because there is part of us that is looking for that flat piece of ground to call it good enough to stick our tent in the ground and say, you know what, I've climbed this mountain high enough. I think it's time to say, that's enough. Or is it? You see, you have one shot at life. And there is an opportunity before you that most people around you, yes, granted, are not going after. And yet you see it, and you know there's more, and you know the Holy Spirit is pressing you onto the more, so will you agree with him to go after the more? And isn't it funny, even when I bring that up, you feel sort of tired. <laughs> this is like, oh, wow. Well. <laughs> I mean, we're not even doing anything but sitting here, right? But we feel tired because it goes against the grain of our human wiring. Our human wiring, and this is the way it is like for me at night, when I know that it's like, whoa, it's 10 o'clock, and I immediately feel tired if I find out it's 10. Why? Because I have to get up at 4.40, the next morning. So I immediately psychologically go into tired mode. My body immediately clicks into its time to go to bed. And so therefore, it, my body agrees with the notion and begins to feel tired. It's like, yeah, uh, Les, I'm going to have to start transitioning uh, to bed. And I am not a night person. I'm a morning person. And But as a result, I almost make myself not a night person And it's hard for me to get into a good conversation or a good meeting late at night because I'm a morning person. And psychologically, I'm like, I'm tired right now. Or am I? Uh, Are you actually too tired to keep pressing forward? Or are you telling yourself you're too tired? This is like some weird game that we're playing with these bodies. Bring that body into subjection and tell it. You tell it how it's going to live this life. And it needs to go beyond where you're allowing it to go right now. Every athletic trainer would tell you the same, by the way. Isn't that interesting? It sounds like an athletic trainer type of uh, communication. The re-education of Eric Ludi, starting from scratch. So I, I don't know that this is fresh enough in my memory to really rehash it well. I just put it down as a, a slide, and now here I am trying to unpack it, but I haven't thought it through in a long time. And that is, when I was around 20... See, I had already had uh, a couple years in college where I was getting top grades. I was in a double major, biology and chemistry. I was in a pre-med program, and I was at the top of my class. And yet I came to an acknowledgement that I was dumb. I know, that's a pretty extreme statement. But I had grown up in the public school system, and then it only continued in college, that I was very good at regurgitating what was being taught me but I had a no original thought. I never cultivated my mind to think its own thoughts. I received thoughts from other people and then could tell them back to people. And so I was really good at that. And when schools measure you based on your ability to regurgitate, yeah, you could be a good student and not know anything. And then ironically, after a little bit, what you just regurgitated, you forget. And so what exactly do you have but the ability to now only go back and hear it again, to regurgitate it again? And this really triggered in my life when I was traveling. I remember I was in India. In- India. I was in Indiana. Boy, there's a, there's a, there's a difference. I was in Indiana, and uh, I was visiting someone. I don't even know why I was there. And I remember being in a church. Never, I was in that church once. And this pastor gets up, and he opens some passage, uh in i, I want to say uh maybe first samuel okay and he reads one line and he built an hour long message out of one line of the text of scripture and he unpacked it i had never never seen it before i had never seen it before and i remember just sitting there in awe because if you gave me that same one sentence that, of scripture i could read this scripture and then maybe read it again out loud and go okay let's pray I had nothing to say about it. I had no insight into it. I didn't even know how to get insight into it. How do you dig into scripture? I didn't know. And I started to have this panic inside of me that I don't know anything. My brain doesn't work like this guy's does. It was just a fascinating observation that I was having. And so I began to pursue something. And that was what I called the re-education of Eric Ludi. I wanted to learn how to think. I wanted to learn how to use my mind I wanted to learn how to do what the mind was meant by God to do. And I, if public school systems could give me you know, the plaudits and they could give me the A's and they could give me the high uh, rewards for doing it their way, I wanted to get that in the kingdom of heaven. God gave me a mind. I want to know how to use it. So I know this is going to sound strange, but I went back to grammar and I started learning grammar. I, re- I learned to write again, like my uh, penmanship, because my penmanship was, was terrible, and my sister just happened to be a grammar teacher, and uh, she taught penmanship. So I literally said to my sister, could you teach me this again? And I started uh, going through critical thinking skills and, th- and reasoning and how logic worked, and I wanted to understand how my brain could actually get its synopsis firing so that I could have original thought as opposed to borrowed thought. I don't want to just live off of what everyone else says. I want to know how to use this brain that God God gave me. And so I I want you to see a parallel. When When I study Alfred, I'm going to see something very similar to what I'm familiar with. He is inheriting a system of illiteracy. And no one, including himself, knows how to function the way his nation once functioned. His nation used to have scholars in it. And so, because of the Roman Empire being Christianized, there was this mighty movement of learning and education in the Bible. And that once was in his very territory. Wessex was a haven for knowledge and truth of Scripture. And now, after a couple hundred years have passed, it's like gone, completely gone. And you have this man who's suddenly going to awaken to realize, I have a nation that doesn't know God. They don't know how to read to even find Him. And what are we going to do about this? Okay, and you can get sort of tired. If you were Alfred right now, you know, you could get sort of tired thinking, oh boy, that's going to be a huge project. And that's part of what the rabid yeti of Wessex is. Aren't you intrigued to know how we get a yeti uh, in this story? By the way, a yeti is like the abominable snowman. It's like one of those big white uh, hairy creatures. You know, I don't know if... uh, Bigfoot is called a Yeti or not, but you know you could mix and match any way you want. But it's one of those big growling uh, characters, right? The yearning to improve. <laughs> and so if you're seeing the screen, uh, that's where I'm getting Yeti from. Yearning, Y-E, to improve. Yeti, okay? That's my anacronym. I see acronyms, You can get some good stuff out of anacronyms. So the strange and inexplicable drive that some humans have But most don't. Some people have this. Have you ever seen it? You're around it and they're just like, I need more. I want to learn more. And it's very convicting when you're around it. It's like, what's wrong with me? (laughs) Why is it that they have such a drive? Alfred is going to surprise you. This guy, his father died when he was extremely young. His mother died when he was extremely young. And his four older brothers all died. Leaving him basically an orphan king. He's a king in charge of, the, of, the, of a nation in desperate straits. Everything is against this guy. He has nothing going well for him. What would cause a, a young man like this to grow up and get that yearning to improve? This guy is not just going to want to improve his life, he's going to want to improve all of Wessex. And he doesn't want just to just improve Wessex, he wants to improve the world. He wants to change the world. I am deeply inspired by this because he has every reason to lick his wounds and to say, oh, poor me. Instead, he is going to turn outward and he is going to become a juggernaut in history of change. So the inscription on the statue of King Alfred, uh, I've read this a few uh, episodes ago and it is that good. I mean, it's really powerful. Alfred found learning dead and he restored it. Education neglected, and he revived it. The laws powerless, and he gave them force. The church debased, and he raised it. The land ravaged by a fearful enemy from which he delivered it. Alfred's name shall live as long as mankind shall respect the past. And each one of us could have a paragraph. How did you encounter, whether it's your life and the challenges that you faced, whether it's the culture around you, and then you have an assignment with that. You find it a certain way, but are you going to leave it a certain way or are you going to change it? And that's part of the, the more granular level imprint that this is making on me is like, okay, Lord, I want to learn from this man and what he did because it deeply inspires me. And I see the impact on all of history. I may not be a king, but I can still take that same truth and apply it to my domain, my realm. My realm. Alfred's rabid yeti. So his rabid yearning to improve. (laughs) See, isn't that good? That's a good title. The rabid yeti of Wessex. Alfred's yearning to improve is the yeti. And it's a powerful, growling force in this nation. So Alfred inherited an inoperative and ineffective military system, a territory of unwalled cities, a weak navy unable to control the Wessex shoreline, "...a coinage, like a money, uh, a currency, that was not respected or valued, an illiterate people, a language without any system of learning and no books, a nation of confused laws and uncertain consequences, a people stuck in their unhealthy traditions of defeat, a once-Christian culture that had forgotten its amazing past, a Viking enemy that wanted to eat him and his people for lunch, a Viking enemy that was stronger than him and more ready to fight." That's a rough inheritance. It's like, okay, what's your starter package? Well, right there. And so most of us receive, especially those of us that, are, that have received a difficult start, we have a tendency to go into self-pity mode and become the victims instead of pulling Alfred. I mean, this is very impressive because he has a lot of reasons to run from this. And yet he isn't ju- he's not going to just not run, but he is going to actually exert himself to change it. And he will not relent until it's changed. And that's what basically we're going to be focused on this week. We're going to be focused, and there's so much more I'm leaving out. I mean, I feel terrible with this because today I'm just going to be dealing with the illiteracy issue. I'm going to be dealing with sort of the education issue that he is going to tackle. In a nation of illiteracy, what would you do? Well, he's the king. He can do something However, people that have not been learning have a tendency to be resistant uh, to it. I mean, even those of us that have lived in an educated society have a tendency to be resistant to education. Most people complain about education. You notice that? It's like, oh, I have to go to school. And they have no appreciation for the fact that they are so rare in history to have the opportunity to learn. Now, granted, there's some really bad schooling systems out there right now. And yet, schooling is a gift if we can once again redeem it. It's part of God's purpose for all of us. So Dr. Merkel uh, says it this way, seeing the deplorable state of his own inadequate education, so even his own education is inadequate, and he recognizes that. He's king, and he wants to change things, but his own education is inadequate and the general level of ignorance found throughout his kingdom, Alfred set himself to righting this grievous wrong. It was clear that Wessex would need to humble herself and look for help from without. Just as Alfred had looked to the expert sailors, sailors of Frisia to train his navy, now the king began searching near and far for the best Christian scholars who could be enticed to Wessex to help that nation rekindle the flame of learning. It's sort of tough when in your own nation there's no one... That could help. It's like, can anyone read around here? Uh, What's read? What what does that mean? Can you explain that to me? Well, reading is like, there's like words on a page and you can actually read what they say. You know, you can understand them. Everyone sort of stares back uh, dumbly. It's like, this is a lost art. Isn't that a weird thought to think of an illiterate culture, an illiterate nation? Even the king himself who knows about reading still doesn't really know how, but he knows about it. He's memorized all sorts of things. His mom gave him a book of poetry, and he memorized it. So someone obviously was reading it to him. He's been exposed to reading. But he himself doesn't know how to do these things. The dunce cap, the primacy of Christ. So every now and then I'll bring up the dunce cap. The dunce cap is historically a very negative thing. and However, the hist- in our modern culture, Uh, If you go back uh, to uh, just about 300 years after this, same island, you're going to have uh, a man named John Dunce who's going to be born, and John Dunce is going to be considered the smartest man in the world during his generation, the most brilliant man. And he did wear a pointy cap, which is really awkward, Uh, but it wasn't really pointing like a wizard's cap as much as it was like a finger pointing upward because he was making a statement. If you want to know what the center of all learning, the center of all knowledge is, it's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. So John Dunst built his educational platform off of what he called the primacy of Christ. You put Christ first, and brilliance follows. That was his entire model And so what this is going to lead to is in the entire Middle Ages, which is quite a a period of time, he is going to be considered in the top two or three most brilliant men throughout that entire time. That's That's a lot of humanity, and to be ranked right at the top as far as his brain power, his understanding, his education was premier, It was stellar. And so even 400 years after his death, he has followers called dunces, And these men implemented the same philosophy, which is you start with Christ and you move outward. And if you know Christ, then everything makes sense. It's like that which sets everything else in order. And so when we had the Enlightenment period, you're going to see a move away from Christ as the center of education to man as the center of education. This is called the Enlightenment period. The advent of humanism, where humans become the center instead of God being the center. So why are we learning? For humanity's sake, as opposed to for God's sake. Okay, it shifted, it changed. And now what is the greatest threat to this? The dunces. The dunces and their ridiculous mentality was the great threat to the Enlightenment period. So to punish someone that would dare think like a dunce, you would stick a you know, pointy cap on them and stick them in the corner of the classroom. In other words, it was to silence them and to shame them and to shun them. Now, we just have the dunce cap concept and someone sitting in the corner because they are misbehaving, but we don't realize where it came from, that actually that dunce cap is what you are all wearing right now. This is the basis of Christianity. This is the basis of actually what we believe to be what changes nations. Ironically, you know, before the dunce cap, there was Alfred, and Alfred is literally going to stick a dunce cap on his nation. That's what he's doing. He is saying we all need to know Jesus. If we're going to be a nation that can survive the Vikings, can push out the Vikings, can actually regroup and rebuild, we must get the Scriptures back. But to get the Scriptures back, what do we need? We need to be able to read. And we need to get the Scriptures in our own language. So this is, this is good stuff, guys. The Battle of the Atlantic... Uh, underneath this, I have, the def- to defeat the primary bad guy in World War II, who was Hitler, Churchill first had to win the primary battle, which is the Battle of the Atlantic. Now, this is an entire message I give during World War II, which is based on a similar premise. And it's extremely interesting, because if you were to study World War II, which I don't know if any of you guys have ever spent time with it, I, I find it extremely interesting. Not everyone does. and But there's so many different bad guys in it. So you have for instance, Hitler is just one of the bad guys. You have Mussolini and you have Hirohito from Japan, right? I mean, boo. These guys are all doing bad things, right? And even Stalin's a bad guy, but he just happens to be on the good side. But he's a bad guy, okay? I don't want to excuse him just because he's an ally. He was still a bad guy. However, to win this war, Churchill has to evaluate, all right, first of all, who's the key bad guy? Who's the bad guy that rules them all? You see, if Hitler falls, so does Mussolini. Mussolini's like butter, you know. After that, there, there's no issue because Mussolini only has his power because of Hitler, and Hirohito only has his confidence because Hitler is doing what he's doing. So, you take down Hitler, you take down Mussolini and Hirohito, right there. Okay, so Hitler's our chief bad guy. Now, where do we hit him from? And you could say, the beaches of Normandy. Well, that's good. That's good because that's ultimately what they're going to conclude. However, they cannot hit from the beaches of Normandy because they're trying to get into Berlin. They need to get to Germany. So how do they stop Hitler? Okay, you don't just try and... This is not bombing uh, Nagasaki uh, that is going to actually ultimately deal with the, the end of this war. You know that for most people, they would have said the war came to an end when Hitler fell. The rest was just icing on the cake. It's just a matter of time because that was the real problem. And so they know that they need to buy land, get to Germany. And so they're going to define the coastline of France as the key avenue of entry. They've tried up through Italy as one of the avenues. They could come down through Russia. However, the allies are going to say this is the key place. But to be able to attack Normandy, what do they have to control? The sea. And so as a result, you're going to see that ultimately the biggest battle for the allies is a battle most people don't even know about, and that is the Battle of the Atlantic. The Battle of the Atlantic is the key battle that if they can win that, they can go to the next battle, and then after they win that, they can go to the next battle, but that is the avenue to get to Hitler. Proved to be true, too, and that's ultimately going to be the undoing of Hitler. Once he lost the Atlantic, then boom, 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 everything else began to fall. Alfred is going to assess the situation in Wessex, and he's going to say, okay, what do we need to do? Now, there's two things. He says we need burrs, we need walls around our cities, and we need our people to once again return to Christ. In other words, he's going to have his Battle of the Atlantic, and it sounds strange, but he needs his people to learn how to read so that they can read the Scriptures, so that they can respond to the Scriptures and apply the wisdom of the Scriptures to their life, and the reformation of a culture will follow. He believes that the history of Wessex and the power of Wessex in the future hinges upon Christ getting back into his rightful place. Isn't that amazing? Dr. Merkel, uh, this, this is a quote I gave earlier. I'm going to read it again just because I want you to just uh, allow this to soak in. Seeing the deplorable state of his own inadequate education and the general level of ignorance found throughout his kingdom, Alfred set himself to righting this grievous wrong. It was clear that Wessex would need to humble herself and look for help from without. Just as Alfred had looked to the expert sailors of Frisia to train his navy, now the king began searching near and far for the best Christian scholars who could be enticed to Wessex to help that nation rekindle the flame of learning. So recruiting the six warriors to help him solve his yeti problem. Okay, so these are scholars. He's actually going to scavenge for scholars, anyone who is willing to come, that fears God, knows Latin, therefore knows how to read the Scriptures and can, it can translate it to him in Anglo-Saxon because he doesn't know Latin. He needs someone who can speak his language and somehow make this tangible for him to grasp. As the king, he feels like, get this thought, he first has to learn to read if he's going to commission his nation to read. He first has to understand the Scriptures if he's going to commission his nation to understand the Scriptures. He first has to have Christ at the center of all that he is doing if he is going to commission his nation to do it. Huh, I like his thinking. That's pretty good thinking. So I'm skipping a lot, and I'm just going to tell you the, the six. Werferth, Plegmund, Ethelstan, which is different. We've had a lot of Aethelstans uh, in this story. This is just one of them, but not uh, it's not Guthrum turned Ethelstan. Werewolf. Look at that name. Werewolf. I should have done a whole message called the Werewolf of Wessex. Uh, That would have been good too. The Yeti of Wessex and then the Werewolf of Wessex. Uh, Grimbald and Asser. Asser is the bishop that actually wrote his biography, so he's the most famous one. Dr. Merkel. After enticing these six men to Wessex with promises of countless gifts and places of honor, Alfred secured their services as his personal readers. In exchange for his generous ring-giving, these scholars stayed at the king's side and read to him from whatever books the king could procure. So these guys had a specific job, and that was to follow the king around and read to him all day. So Alfred is literally being filled with the understanding of what uh, books could say to him. Remember, this is a guy who, for whatever reason, he has the yearning to improve. And so even though he has all the issues of battling the Vikings, he has all the issues of, you know, that we've been lifting. up. I mean, he's running a, a nation that is in a desperate uh, situation. So he has all the issues of the court, is what you could call it. He is going to have these men follow him around and read to him all day long. All through the day and occasionally during the king's sleepless nights, they stood ready to help Alfred make good use of any idle moment in the court stepping in to read and discuss with the king as many of the great works of Christendom as the king could obtain. These men also worked to buy, borrow, copy, or acquire in any way possible whatever books could be found to expand the virtually non-existent library of Wessex. Since nearly all of these works were composed in Latin, the king's readers had the difficult task of translating each passage for Alfred into Anglo-Saxon discussing the meaning and implications of the text until the king's curiosity was satisfied and he urged them to continue. The art of yetiing. Okay, now we're creating a, a verb uh, out of this. Uh, you are to yeti. You are to yearn to improve. There is something about this that just stirs me and it, it calls me out as, as a leader because I can very easily say, wow, I'm maxed out. Wow, I don't have any more uh, time for that. Leslie said to me the other day uh, when I was making some comment about how I have no gaps uh, right now, she asked if I could do something. I said, well, I don't really have any gaps to be able to accomplish that. And she said, have you stopped and asked God to increase your capacity? It's like, that's like something I would preach on, but I mean... You know, I haven't asked that. And I think I was sort of scared to ask that. You know, do I really want God to increase my capacity, or could I just justify why I can't do it? Why I can't go beyond this point? But have you ever asked God to increase your capacity? Because th- that's what I'm seeing Alfred do. Alfred is one of the busiest guys on earth right now, and he has scholars following him around. He's doing whatever it takes so that he can grow, so that he can gain more. So the art of yetiing, applying the Alfred oomph to each and every area of our life, because that's what it is. It's that oomph, you know, like when I'm running that final little 400 meters and I, my body is wanting to collapse. That one, it's the kick at the end. It's that digging down and pushing even more. That is, in a sense, the essence of yetiing. This yetiing, this yearning, this drive to say, "Okay, God." I'm the only one that is witness to this right now and I may never get any applause for it, but I am going to draw even deeper and I'm going to press forward. I'm going to take this moment that I could use on myself, but I'm going to use it for you. And you begin to secure your life for the purposes of improvement so that Christ could be seen in and through your life. Yetting ourselves. This is where it starts. It starts with ourselves. Before we start changing nations, we first of all have to be yetied. <laughs> I know that's a funny term, but yeah, we're getting used to it here. The way we talk. You ever thought about yeti the way you talk? That there is a, a way in which we talk. In fact, you could look at it in two different ways. One is the words you are choosing to use. You know, that they are flavored or seasoned with salts. That they are... Uh, uh, that they are framed uh, like apples of gold and settings of silver, that they are appropriate, that they are honorable, that they are loving. At the same time, you could examine your speech based on what distracts people. Um, like, you know, they're called fillers. And as a result, you can better your speech. Like one of the things I'm always trying to do is rotate my adjectives. And it's really hard to do. When you're a speaker, sometimes your adjective uh, turnstile gets jammed and you start using the same adjective over and over again. There's nothing worse than hearing yourself speak like in an audio recording and then you keep using the same adjective. Because, well, not only is it distracting to you as a speaker when you re-listen to it, but it's distracting for others that are of a more, uh, I don't know what the term would be, Uh, they're more finicky about how they, they like to hear things and they're sort of, they would be the grammarians over here, but these are like the speecharians and they, they listen for things. What you don't want to do is put any stumble in front of your audience. You want your audience to hear. And so as a result, if your goal is to be a good communicator, then you need to allow the yetiing process to actually impact your speaking, your talking. The way we act. There are so many different aspects to the way we act that that's a a deep uh, rabbit hole in and of itself. The way we walk. I I used to have, you know, a cool walk. Now I sort of have a boring walk because I had to give up my cool walk, right? But the way you actually are appropriating life is, is very, very important. The way you go through it, the way we learn. You know what, there's ways that you learn that oftentimes in school, they don't even know to teach you. But you have to become a student of yourself. There's certain things that you'll notice I do, and if you ask me, why do you do that? Well, because I know that that's how I sharpen my mind. You'll notice that when I pray, I pace. Why do I do that? Because someone taught me that it's more spiritual to pace? No, in fact, I would say the exact opposite. Eric, could you be still? I've had far more of that. I can't be. If you really want me to be focused right now, let me pace. Because my mind sharpens. My mind, when I pace, actually gets more clear. And how do I I figure that out? By doing it. And so as a result, I walk all day long. And that's how I stay sharp and focused throughout the day. And so there are certain times you will see me sit. You know, when I'm in Starbucks, I don't pace back and forth. However, whenever I'm in a meeting, you'll notice that they'll always sort of set up the room for a little pacing area for Eric, because I'm more effective when I do that. How are you more effective? And in a prayer time, it's funny because some people can sit in a chair and be totally focused. The reason people even close their eyes and fold their hands is for focus. Isn't that interesting? Well, that doesn't really help me focus. So what helps me focus? That's the key. What helps you focus? And so it's sharpening that so that we are more effective. There's certain things like the way that I prepare a sermon is probably different than anyone else on earth and how they prepare a sermon. I prepare a sermon based on the way I am built and my brain works. So instead of you trying to say, "Hey, you know, Eric, you should do it this way. There's only one right way of doing it." Actually, there's a lot of different ways we could do things, but one of the keys is to recognize how we are uniquely built and then sharpen that. The way we read. Well, you can change the way you read. You know, some people are are very sluggish in the way they read or they skim when they read and they don't have a lot of comprehension. And so there's, there's ways of improving that. The way we listen. Listening is an art. And you can be one of those listeners that the whole time you're listening, you're actually thinking about what you're going to say. You're really not listening. You're prepackaging your response. And that's different than listening. Listening is actually hearing, heeding. It does not mean turning your brain off. But if you're distracted by your own response that you're forming, that's not listening. And so you can improve this. The way we lead. Leadership. Boy, that's a huge arch. And there's ways that work and there's ways that don't, but each of us is a different leader too. And so we need to sort of understand all the same things I just said, but applied to our leadership. And so all of these things are things that we can actually begin to see take place in us. But we can do this with each dimension of our life. If you're married, Yeti in your marriage, in the same way you could make a master list. And even the list I just made for ourselves is pathetically small next to what we could dig into. Yetting our families, yetting our businesses, yetting our ministries, okay? There's loads of things we could do to sharpen and to improve everything around us. One of our desires here at Ellerslie is to constantly improve what we're doing, which has led us to change things a lot over the years, which has made some alumni, you know, look at us funny. It's like, wow, they're changing things again? It's like, yeah, yeah, we are. If you asked us why, it's to make it better. That's the reason we're doing it. Everything we're doing is to hopefully make it sharper. And there's certain things we've done that if you said, was that a good decision? No, uh, we probably would want to go back to, well, we probably did go back to the way we were before. In other words, some of our changes weren't as effective as others. Most of our changes have actually made it more effective. So in the Japanese, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this word. In the Japanese, it's a great, like in businesses, they love to whip out this word, kaizen. And that means constant improvement. So this is a Japanese concept where they take their products and they're always trying to improve them. And so what they typically did, the old school model of the Japanese was to take what the Americans invent and then make it better. And that was what they did. And they did it very well. If it's a car, if it's a, you know, Sony Walkman, do you remember remember the, oh, that might date some of you. But uh, they were always taking something that we invented over here and then making it better. And that was their secret of success was Kaizen. They improved upon what we did. And then they would improve upon what they did. And they were always making it better. Whereas the Americans had a tendency to just make something and then sit on it. It's like, no, this is what we made. And it's a good product. Well, the Japanese have a better product. Yeah, but they took our product. They just made it better. Yeah, but why don't you do it better than the Japanese? And so it's this constant improvement that the Japanese begin to go forward and ahead of us in industry and in technology because of this principle, which is why it became a business thing. And then everyone's like, Kaizen, Kaizen. And they even said it like Japanese, right? However, where does this come from? The idea of constant improvement is actually not Japanese in its origin. It's the kingdom of heaven. However, we're not trying to improve our natural man. We're trying to improve our spiritual man, which includes a natural husk. And so we need to address natural elements. But ultimately, it's because God wants us to improve a spiritual man, to grow him up from immaturity unto maturity. The word in the Greek is hagiosmos. Hagios is holy. That's the word for holy. So this is the process of being made like God. Being made holy. The process of sanctification. It's not something that you immediately have, that you're sanctified. There is is the concept of you being made like Christ in clothing. Like when you are clothed in Christ, you are holy. You are sanctified in that sense. However, underneath that clothing is a very real work in process. You are an unfinished work and you're immature like a little child that needs to grow up. And there's nothing wrong with that. God knows that. And so as a result, what does it take to grow? It takes exercise. It takes deliberate steps of obedience. It takes learning how to kick into gear on the final 400 meters and getting in shape. There is a real exercise of what you've been given. So when you take All of those parables, you know, this one guy's given one talent of gold, this guy's given five, and this guy's given ten, what should they do with it? Don't bury it. Exercise it. Invest it. And this is how the kingdom of heaven works. And so for each of us, we've been given something. We've been given time, energy, resource, talents. What are we doing with them? Are we investing them? Are we exercising them? Now, this is meant to be a work of the Holy Spirit, inside of us. This is not a work that we just do to ourselves. It's like, okay, I need to be a better human. Because that's, there's a lot of people that have this yetiing principle. However, they're not doing it for the kingdom and the glory. There's a lot of kings that have wanted to better their nations, but not like Alfred. Alfred wants to do it to showcase Jesus. He wants to bring his nation to Jesus, not just to increase his wealth and power. So there's something very, very special here. 1 Timothy 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, the Scripture goes on, but that's quite an interesting statement there. In other words, to say God desires this for you. He desires to fully form you from immature to mature. The river of life, we'll call it the Yeti River. Okay, so this, this river of life is going to be seen all throughout Scriptures, but in Ezekiel, We're going to see a very unique introduction to it in Ezekiel 47 where you have this picture of this temple that has never been built here on earth and very likely could just be called the heavenly temple, the Ezekiel temple, but out of it is going to gush a river and we're going to recognize this as the river of life. And one thing about this river is that it is ever deepening. So, Ezekiel 47, 3 through 9. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. And when the man went out to the east with the lion in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. The waters came up to my ankles. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000. It was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And so what you see is this progression in this river. In the New Testament, we're going to see this river revealed as the Holy Spirit. And so what you see is this Holy Spirit, which is coming forth out of the temple of God, and it is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And as Ezekiel moves forward in agreement with the man of God. He is following the river. Then it's up to his ankles, then it's up to his knees, then it's up to his waist, then it's so deep he can't stand in it. There's less of him, more of the river. And you see a constant progression, which is actually a beautiful picture of the growth as a Christian. Okay, That as we heed the Holy Spirit and go in that direction where he is leading, there is less of us, there's more of him. There's one more line I wanted you to see in this, and that is, and it says, and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the river goes will live. Everything will live wherever the river goes. And so obviously you want to go with this river of life. Where this river goes, there's life. And so as a result, let's follow the river. Where is the river going? Let's go with the river. But it's going deeper. It's going so deep that it's going to swallow me up. Let's follow the river. That's the way to life. And so as a result, there's a lesson baked into this river. John 7, 38. He who believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what we see is a picture of Ezekiel 47 right here. Jesus is going to be, of course, that temple on the cross. His side's going to be pierced, and out of his side is going to flow a river. And whoever follows in that river, that river of life, because blood is life to the Jews, so you have blood and water, which is living water, that river of life, anyone who follows that will live, right? And so then Jesus is going to shock us all. Now, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. The next scripture is actually going to say that here. But he's going to say that, and that's basically what we have too we are going to be filled with that same Holy Spirit. We are going to become the temple of God. And then out of us is going to flow that same river. The Yeti River running through Alfred. It's ever deepening. So Alfred has this same river running through him. And it's ever deepening. See, that when it's running through you, it's like this constant longing, this constant draw for, I'm saying improvement, whether or not that's the best word, But it's more. It's desiring more. And it's a strange thing that happens inside of us. Those of us that gather here at Ellerslie, I don't know what it is, but it's like, I want more. I'm not satisfied. And it's not that we are discontent in a wrong way. We're discontent in a right way. Is it okay, God, that I'm not satisfied with the way the church is today? That I want us to be back into our full mode of strength? So I'm discontent in a holy way. This is not right, and God doesn't want me to be satisfied with it. God wants me to be irked by the fact that the church is languishing. God wants Alfred to be irked by the fact that his nation is illiterate, that his coins are worthless, that his military defenses are non-existent, that Vikings are ruling his land. He wants Alfred to be discontent with that and to push back. However, that's a holy discontent. You see, there's a, there is an improper discontentment that we should never touch, but that's for self. But when it's for the glory of God and the desire for Him to be seen, for us to know Him and to make Him known, that's the right thing that should bother us, and it should be an ache inside of us. I want more. I, I received some kind of, uh, I think it was an email today, With a link to an article. I didn't read the article, but it was something, I think, Washington Times saying, the new religion of America, fake Christianity. And I didn't read the article. I don't know that I want to stomach such a notion in the first place. However, I know exactly what they're talking about. And it disturbs me. And it bothers me. And God, if you want to stick me in any Alfred position to make a difference, Give me that jurisdiction I want to press forward. I want to see the church awaken from its stupor and its slumber. Where does that come from? Right? That's the same thing that's stirred inside of Alfred. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually the one that's a little upset and ticked off by what's going on. He has a desire to see Jesus made known in this earth. But there is a squelching. There is a damper pedal upon it. And he is ready to push against it. But we are the vessels he uses. So if you feel a little desire for yetiing in your soul, it's because the Holy Spirit is desiring it. Dr. Merkel says, on November 11th, St. Martin's Day, in the year 887, Asser remember he's the bishop that wrote his biography recorded that the king made a significant and miraculous step, suddenly being able to read and translate the Latin text for himself. So this has taken years. He has been going and studying himself and trying to learn Latin. Why? Because every book is written in Latin in this time. There is no books written in Anglo-Saxon. So the language that he speaks, there's no books. So the only way to access the knowledge of Christian history is actually to learn Latin. And so he takes this significant and miraculous step. He actually is able to read and translate the Latin text for himself. Soon the king was fluently working through the church services, reading the Psalms for himself and working his way through a selection of patristic texts. Now finding himself moving freely through the enormous body of literature that made up the great works of Christendom, Alfred's mind instantly turned to the people of Wessex. How could this great wealth of Christian wisdom be passed on to his countrymen? So first he's going to start by yetting himself. And he is, I mean, this is very impressive for a guy this busy to learn how to read and translate Latin. Why? Why does he want to do this? So that he can read about Jesus, so that he can read the truth. And then once he solves this riddle for himself, he's like, okay, it can be done. This can be done, guys. We can actually gain this learning back. Then he's like, he turns outward and he sees his nation. He's like, all right, they need to learn this now. Remember, this is an ever deepening river. If Christian virtues were to return to England, then the Anglo-Saxons would need to return to Christian learning. Isn't that an interesting thought process? Dr. Merkel continues, With an eye toward restoring this learned piety to the people, Alfred orchestrated a tremendous revival of literacy, a revival that culminated in the greatest literary renaissance ever experienced in Anglo-Saxon Britain. With the Vikings driven from the borders of Wessex and the restructuring of the Anglo-Saxon military well underway, Alfred soon began to find moments of rest from his other kingly duties, moments in which he could turn his attentions to this problem of Anglo-Saxon illiteracy. Soon a plan began to take shape, a plan striking in both its ambition and its simplicity. First, Alfred decided that his goal was nothing less than the literacy of every freeborn man within his borders. If the purpose of recovering education was to recover piety, then it would do no good to educate only a small and exclusive circle of hermit-like scholars, leaving the rest of the Anglo-Saxons ignorant and impious. Thus, the king of Wessex wanted to see wisdom passed on to as many of his subjects as possible, introducing the radical proposal that Christian learning ought not to be solely the enterprise of the monks and priests of the medieval church, such a radically ambitious goal was in danger of being so optimistic as to seem unachievable and thus dismissed from the start. I don't think we understand how significant something like this is, to take an entire nation that is illiterate, that has fallen away from the truth of God's word, and then to say, we're going after it, guys. You're going to be educated. And they're like, what? What's education? I mean, they haven't even grown up in this. We grew up in it. We take it for granted. This hasn't even existed so ignoring the fact that all of the learning of the Christian West had been handed down in the Latin language, Alfred decided to aim for fluency in the vernacular of his people, the Anglo-Saxon tongue. So this is almost like a da doon type of a setup. It's like stay tuned for the next episode. The reason is, you know what it would mean if you're going to try and train an entire nation in this great truth of God's Word? What would you need to do if you don't want to try and teach them in Latin? You would have to translate all of these books into Anglo-Saxon. Now, you have to realize, and I'm going to sort of give a hint at least, in the upcoming years, I think around 400 years later, men will burn at the stake for translating the Bible into the common tongue. Alfred is going to do it boldly right here. And no one seems to remember that in English history and so as a result, uh, it's fairly important that you see it, that you recognize that this, the foundation for this is what changed the nation in the first place, is that the common man could read the Bible. We always thought that that was Wycliffe and Tyndale. Alfred the Great? Who would have ever guessed that? And so and that's just a hint. I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> However, what you see is something that I want you to grab a hold of. Now, I'm calling it yeti yearning to improve now he had a rabid yeti he had a strong desire to improve himself to get out of his illiterate state to not accept it and just suck his thumb and say well this is what i inherited this is what my father gave me what am i supposed to do change it yes see most of us don't think like that but what if we did I don't know how to stick a fire underneath you and you know, get you going, whoa, whoa, on this point. But if I could, I would. Because there is something about this, and I've seen it in my own life. When I pursue changing things, I have always been what we could call the average student, always. I've, I've never been the brilliant intellectual. I've never been the guy with the high IQ. I'm the average guy. But this, the difference about me is I refuse to stay just average. I want to pursue excellence, even though it's a lot harder for me. One of my best friends in high school had a photographic memory, and he was, the, you know, valedictorian. You know, and it, I might come in the top, like, 25% of my class. You know, you know that's good. You know, it's because I'm a hard worker. But everything was hard for me. In college, I had to study. I couldn't just, like, read the book and then memorize it. It's like I had to study, and I spent more time studying. Than most people. And so hard work was what I had to put in if I'm going to get a good output. I understand what it's like to be sort of the average, but then there's also the people that are sub-average that have extra challenge, whether it's learning difficulties. Like I didn't have learning difficulties, it was just harder for me to learn than the guy with a photographic memory, the cheater. You know, what in the world? I don't like that at all. However, there's others with with learning disabilities. There's others that don't have the same family structure that I had, which set me up for strength. And for me, I say, this is where Alfred steps in. He's like, guys, you have no excuse. This guy had every challenge imaginable and look how he handled it. And that to me is deeply inspiring because in every area of life, we have weaknesses. We have areas where we're almost just like, you know what, that's just the way it's going to be. Instead of fighting it and saying, you know what? Holy Spirit, you work through me. I want to go deeper in this river. I want to go where the life is, and I refuse to accept this as the end. The river is always moving. That's one of the principles of a river. So just keep moving forward with it. Don't stagnate. Move forward with Jesus Christ. Father, whatever is needed in us, I pray that you would do it, that you would stir us afresh today. That you would give us that fire, to, that drive to go after more of you. Lord, thank you for what you've given us. Lord, we have such a contentment in you. But we have a holy discontentment knowing that there is so much more to be had and that this world is dying and going to hell. Lord, we desire you to intervene in this world and we know that you have chosen us as the vehicles through which that revelation will take place. So Lord, may all of the obstacles that stand in our way, everything that is hindering our forward progress just melt away. And Lord, I pray that you would give us power to step forward, to be sanctified, to be readied, to be prepared to shine the light of Jesus in this hour. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ.